Human beings are wired to succeed in a physical environment. In primitive times, we would look around and go, grass, grass, tiger, grass. Wait, let's go back to the tiger, right? right? That's dangerous. And so I wonder how we could begin to use our design lens to say, what are the cue signals and messages in this physical environment that help people in their automatic nervous system register and adopt the right body posture, mental posture, openness, that gives the physician a leg up in having a successful consult. Welcome to 360 Real Time, a Steelcase podcast with behind-the-scenes conversations about what we're learning about the places people work, learn, and heal. I'm Rebecca Charbowski. I'm here with Seth Starner. He works in advanced explorations for Steelcase Health. Hi, Seth. Hi. What are we talking about? So today we're exploring design and design thinking and its intersection with healthcare. I had the chance to talk to experts doing the real-world work to figure out how to improve the way you receive care. And they're also working on ways to help clinicians and doctors have a better day at the same time. And we're going to hear from Kim Irwin, who we heard at the top of the episode. She's going to tell us what we can all learn from the fast food industry. First, as always, we want to thank anyone who's rated and reviewed this podcast. If you haven't done that, please do so. Make sure to subscribe to be the first to get our next new episode. Our next conversation will be with best-selling author Simon Sinek. He'll explain his new book, The Infinite Game, which flips a lot of traditional business notions on their head. Seth, today we're going to share a conversation that you got to have on the day of the grand opening of the Institute for Healthcare Delivery Design at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Yeah, I had the chance to talk with Kim Irwin, co-director for the Institute and a research professor at the UIC School of Design. And we're going to hear from Jerry Krishnan, a pulmonologist and professor of medicine and public health who serves as associate vice chancellor for population health and co-directs the institute. Let's listen in on your conversation. Kim, Jerry, let's start with what's driving the formation of the institute. What do you hope to achieve? I think it was for us a case of doctor meets designer and recognizing that the goals of medicine, which is to give people the best medicine and the best care they can possibly muster as a health system, and the goals of individuals who are patients, which is to receive the best care and to adapt it and integrate it into their life and and to heal. The recognition we had that our skill sets were complementary, deeply complementary, is something that um, happened quite quickly, but figuring out how to make them complementary in a practical way is something that took a little bit longer. So when you're looking at healthcare delivery design, what does that mean to you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, The reason we call it healthcare delivery design is we start at the point of care, and that could be in an outpatient setting, it could be an emergency department, it could be a hospital. And so understanding that because as an industry we are focused on the healthcare delivery portion, but human beings don't exist in industries, and their needs cross All of those contexts means that we are trying to connect those dots and create end-to-end solutions that don't presume that the heart of healthcare is inside the healthcare system. I agree with um, points that Kim just made. And I would say that in addition to the delivery of healthcare, which might be a prescription or it might be counseling, I think we need to all start to think about the space in which that happens. Um, How are people configured so that communication is happening in a way that's bi-directional? I think we're starting to appreciate more and more that healthcare is not merely the science of delivering something to someone, but the context in which that is being done so that it sticks and that it needs to be tailored in multiple ways. So chronic diseases like heart disease, diabetes, those really can't be answered with just one visit. 
And so you end up with this ongoing relationship with healthcare. But our health system is really good at fixing acute problems, but now it's being asked to do so much more. Jerry, how does design play a role in that? Um, I think what we're starting to recognize is that as people age and as once incurable diseases that led to demise, you know, as those are now treatable in some ways, people start to accumulate more and more health conditions. And so really, it's not only chronic disease, it's multiple chronic diseases. It's not about what the endocrinologist is doing for the diabetes. It's about not only what they're doing for the diabetes, but how does that intersect with, let's say, what the cardiologist is recommending for their heart disease and, and what that patient then has to do uh, when they go see their pulmonologist for their lung disease. So what has now started to become really quite a Rubik's Cube here is how do you orchestrate the management and the care of an individual that is really seeking different types of care at different moments in time that need to be weaved together in some organized way. And so I think that's where, uh, at least what I'm seeing, is where the field of design really has a lot to offer, is helping us understand the context in which that patient is presenting and how do you coordinate the care across the different scenarios that we've just described. I am a, a relatively new transplant to healthcare, and so part of that allows me to bring fresh eyes. One thing I have learned is that there's almost nothing I can point to in healthcare that healthcare doesn't already know is a problem. Healthcare isn't a system, it's a multi-system as we talk about it on our side of the wall at UIC, meaning that there are many systems interdependent and locked in together but only tenuously. So uh, a hospital is discharged to a skilled nursing facility, but there's also you know, an outpatient care, and there's an ambulance system involved, and a pharmacy involved, and those are all systems in and of themselves. And of course, insurance. And, and of course, insurance, right. <laughs> the, um, the payers. It has a, a big footprint on healthcare. Yeah. So being able to step through and see, well, what would a seamless experience look like for uh, a patient um, or, frankly, for a provider? Because it's not any better on the provider's side than it is for the patients. And it's very easy to say, oh, well, we should be patient-centered or we should really focus on caregivers. It's true. But at a, when you're working at a system or a multi-system level, you can't be you can't pick and choose who to be empathic with. Everybody has to count. And I think design's ability to focus not just on systems thinking and on integrating end-to-end processes, but to find points of meaning for people. So when you're thinking about making meaning, you know, at Steelcase, we believe that space matters. And I'm just curious about design and rethinking healthcare delivery. What role does the built environment play in making meaning for patients? One of the things that I, uh, as a faculty member at UIC, that I, I train our, you know, our medical students or postdocs on how to provide care is that when we are talking to patients, I always insist that I sit at eye level with the patient and that we're having a dialogue with them feeling as an equal partner in the decision making as opposed to me sitting on the other side of a desk, for example, and then peering over a computer and somehow announcing what it is that we're going to do. And so it actually throws off most of our trainees because it adds time. So I think the first is that most exam rooms, from my perspective, are not designed to support communication uh, and build trust and build relationships. So I think we need to think more about that. I'll also say that, you know, uh, where I trained in, in medicine, I, uh, I, it was a hospital in Baltimore. I remember there was something called a doctor's dining room. 
And the unusual thing about those dining rooms is, is actually a lot of work got done there. That's exactly where you saw the cardiologist. You could say, you know, I saw your patient. This is what I was thinking. Can you be sure to follow up on X? Or that when I saw your patient, I wasn't really sure why you had selected treatment X. Can you give me some insights? So that informal space where you could speak among your colleagues, that has now increasingly gone away. And the communication, therefore, among clinicians is now occurring through technology, through electronic health records where you're writing these long notes they're actually uh, oftentimes devoid of the critical question that you want posed or a mechanism by which you know you might want to be informed. So I think the space, not only for the patient-clinician interaction, but also the space as it's configured for various stakeholders in healthcare to be able to interact with them, you know, with each other in an informal way. That's another key missing ingredient, I think, that I've started to see in new healthcare facilities. We've actually encountered that sense of isolation in our research. Sure, you can communicate virtually, but bumping into someone in the hall or having a meal together lets you share information in a totally different way with your peers, and that seems to have been deemed inefficient. Now we're seeing, like you, a greater interest in helping clinicians collaborate. How do you weave that all together? Physicians and patients are going to have to have relationships that are based in a mutual agreement on a treatment plan. So right now, in any given chronic condition, a patient may walk in, a doctor may hand their prescription, and a patient will say, sure. But what they're really doing is yupping in the doctor. Because I've talked to those patients after they leave the exam room or in their home settings, and they're like, I'm not giving my child steroids. I mean, the doctor told me to give them a steroid. They didn't hear, you know, that abuterol for asthma is a, a different kind of steroid. They didn't hear that component, nor did they ask that question. So they left misaligned with the treatment plan. And yet, in the future, or for some health systems now, the payment model will be on a successful execution of that treatment plan and a patient outcome that, that matches it. So all of a sudden, that patient-provider communication has to actually be set up to succeed. And space is obviously an actor in that. We were doing some work with a pulmonologist and went into his uh, specialty clinic and we're documenting how he uses the exam room with patients. And he puts them at one end of the room, and then the diagnostic tools, uh, you know, which you look in your ears and your nose with, are on a string on the other side of the room. I don't know why they're on a string. That's a question we didn't get to ask yet. And he takes them off the room and walks across the room and sticks them in a patient's ear and then walks them back across the room. And this is, you know, we're looking at this going, wow, that's really not <laughs> a reasonable way to set up, you know, a space. It's not a work triangle that is effective. Right, right. And so um, my colleague says to him, are there things you would change in this exam room? And he says, no, this exam room is fine. I don't know what you mean. And then um, three days later, she runs into him in the stairwell and he says, Sarah, um, I was thinking about what you were saying about the exam room. And he says, I have 30 things I would like to change about my exam rooms. In fact, my exam rooms are terrible. I hate them. I don't want to work in them anymore. And this is one of the most mild-mannered people <laughs> to hear this coming out of his mouth. So design can be an instigation um, where once you cause people to be aware of the setting and how it influences what they can or can't do with a patient or whether it's mediating that in a productive or a maladaptive way is shown to them, they can't not see it. And yet we're asking them to continue to operate in settings and situations that were designed by people who I think probably didn't spend a lot of time thinking about what was actually happening in those rooms. So, you know, these clinic settings are boxes, and then there's boxes inside of boxes, and then 
they make more boxes inside of those boxes and they put people <laughs> in the boxes. And I think there has to be some way to create space built around patient models rather than forcing patient models into spaces that were never really optimized for them. Yeah, there's this attitude of, I'll make it work because I have patients whose needs are greater than mine, instead of saying, you know, I could really thrive as a care provider if this environment were more attuned to me and, and building trust and a relationship with patients and families. I think that, you know, we're at a point where, uh, as you may know, there's an enormous amount of demands now being placed on, on what has to happen in that clinic encounter. You know, the amount of minutes that you're spending are, are being tracked, how many patients are being seen per hour, uh, whether you're billing the right way in order to uh, adequately be compensated for the work that you're producing or you're documenting the right information in the electronic health records. And that is leading to uh, a crisis in terms of clinicians getting frustrated and overburdened and in some cases leaving the field altogether. And so this concept of burnout has started to get a terminology around it. And I think that as we start to metricize everything and track everything, clinicians are going to increasingly want space that is optimized for them to do what they need to do. And I think space is one of those critical features. And particularly if you're using models of care that's called shared decision-making, you have to configure the environment in such a way that it promotes shared decision-making. And it's hard to be doing shared decision-making if you're peering over a computer around the corner every, you know, every five minutes, right? So I think space and how it promotes shared decision-making, space in terms of how it promotes relationships, space in terms of how it engages patients in their care, um, I, I think it's only going to increase in, in being recognized as a, a critical aspect of how we are delivering health care. It's interesting. Within the last nine months, we did a study talking to patients who are getting wellness checks, and we asked them, how do they feel about the exam room? And the response was harsh, cold, dehumanizing, violating, really strong language. So Kim, you've previously mentioned how in healthcare spaces, it seems like everyone is a temporary guest. No one owns the space. How do you change that paradigm? Uh, so I'm a, a recovering consultant, as I like to characterize myself. And in my former life, I worked for a fast food company. One of the things that we had to help people on the client side get past is this idea that the primary goal of the seating area is to put in furniture that can be washed and sanitized thousands and thousands of times because it's, that's an operational reality. I'm not diminishing that right. as a goal right. or as a requirement for a good solution. But we had to open up the channel of conversation with them to say, well, why would anybody sit here at all to eat? Because that's the problem we think we can help you with. And then the furniture solution has to be integrated and sort of balanced against the requirements of what's inviting to help people sit down in a public space. I think that the exam room has a bit of a similar problem. It has been operationalized uh, for cleanliness, which is important. We, infection control is not a trivial issue. No. No. Um, but it isn't welcoming. And I don't mean to say that we should be decorating this room to make it feel like your bedroom or what I consider to be one of the bigger transgressions in hospital design, which is these entry areas that are meant to you know, evoke hotels and they've got player pianos and water features, and I think that's absurd. But 
every space, human beings are wired to succeed in a physical environment. In primitive times, we would look around and go, grass, grass, tiger, grass. Wait, let's go back to the tiger, right? right. That's dangerous. So we have this eye-brain hardware that allows us to walk into a space or out in the world and make sense of that environment in terms of preserving us but also enabling us to focus on our tasks or the things that we think we ought to be doing. And I think that those cues in an exam room are telling you something very different than the actual tasks that are supposed to be accomplished in an exam room. So you go in and you see paper on a, an exam chair and you see a chair that is seriously uncomfortable to sit in for a patient, never mind a patient with any kind of mobility issues or, or size issues. There is nothing in these spaces that speaks to a place. It is not really a place. It is a transition. And so I wonder how we could begin to use our design lens to say, what are the cue signals and messages in this physical environment that help people in their automatic nervous system register and adopt the right body posture, mental posture, openness, that gives the physician a leg up right. in having right. a successful consult. Um, so that's what I meant that I think exam spaces in particular, but waiting rooms are not a lot better. In fact, uh, waiting rooms are often quite worse because they really are meant for a five-minute chair. In design terms, the idea that a chair might look okay, but you sit in and you can't sit in it for more than five, five minutes, minutes without being uncomfortable. Right. Um, all of these you know, uh, spaces are designed to be transitional. They're designed to turn over. And because they're designed to turn over, that the fact that there have to be dwell moments and conversations need to open up and unfold in a dwell moment. And in fact, it's even more critical to make that happen in a short time frame. Um, they're working against each other. It seems like we've gone through two eras of medicine, this first era of the physician as authority, you know, do as the doctor tells you. And now we're in that phase of physician as documentarian. And I hope we're transitioning to that point of physician as coach, someone who's there to inform you and help you make decisions and decide what to do. I'm curious, how do you see the future? Yeah, that's a very good point. I think most health systems have their feet in sort of two different places. One is optimized for a transactional model of care, you know, volume-based payments, the more you do, the more you get paid, to value-based care, which is really trying to optimize patient experience, quality, and outcomes. But I would point out that if you look at Medicare and Medicaid, which you know together pay for roughly two-thirds of healthcare in this country, right? even those products now are increasingly becoming managed in a way that they're asking for value. So I, I think the aircraft carrier is turning. Now it's a matter of timing and how quickly we get there. Um, I think patients are also demanding more. I think they're recognizing they want to be part of the solution. They want to offer their preferences when decisions are being made. It's happening in every other sector, and it's definitely happening in healthcare as well. I think we need exam spaces or rooms that facilitate and promote shared governance of, of what is being discussed. And so I, I think it's just a matter of time where we are all going to move in that direction. And this is also an opportunity to talk about the fact that as we think about healthcare, which is very much metric-driven in terms of measuring the success or failure of ideas, uh, I would suggest that the faster we move to having evidence to support the integration of design and healthcare, the more quickly more health systems will want, in fact, demand it, and payers as well. I think we're all looking for solutions that work. And I think that we have an opportunity to create measures that are more accurate in terms of capturing an experience that uh, patients would prefer to have. So, um, 
you know, it's been well documented that patients can have better care in one office than in another, and yet the experience they have with that provider drives up the patient satisfaction score. It's not necessarily tied to treatment and best medicine has to offer. So if it turns out that a small gesture on the part of a physician, such as you walk into a physician's office, he pours you a glass of water and hands it to you and says, welcome, would that drive up his satisfaction scores? And if the answer is yes, wouldn't he be happy to, to, do it. <laughs> to do it every single time? And wouldn't a patient feel special mm-hmm. for having that kind of thoughtfulness? It's the kind of hosting you get in, when you go into someone's home. Again, you know, we're not trying to recreate unrealistic environments, but I think we are not attending to the – we are not measuring the subtle but significant things that make people feel that they are being cared for. And that has to be done in addition to medicine. It's not a substitute for quality medicine. That's the ultimate no. job of healthcare. Right. But the experience wrapper around that is something I think design can help with. Kim, Jerry, this was a great conversation. Thank you for joining us. This was so much it was a fun. Pleasure. You've been listening to 360 Real Time. Just a reminder to rate, review, and subscribe. You won't want to miss our next conversation with Simon Sinek, the best-selling author of Start With Why. Here's a sneak peek. It drives me nuts when Mm. leaders say, you have to earn my trust. No, it's the complete opposite. The people are not required to trust you. You are required to trust them, and you must earn their trust. And when we operate in that way, the result is teamwork that is so powerful, so compelling. It's where we literally love our teammates. We'll be discussing Simon's new book, The Infinite Game. Make sure to subscribe to be the first to hear that interview. We want to thank Kim Irwin, Jerry Krishnan, and Seth Starner for sharing this conversation. If you'd like more information on how the physical environment can impact healthcare, visit steelcase.com health. Thanks for listening.